Hello, everyone. Welcome to Executive Report. Uh, today, we're blessed to have Elliot Wagenheim join us. And uh, I know many of you in the Baltimore, Maryland area may know the name, especially in the construction industries. But for those of you that are listening in other states around the country and even internationally, I'll read a quick little bio so you know what we'll be talking about. So with over 30 years of experience, uh, Elliot not only honors his craft as a lawyer and a litigator, but is also a teacher, a writer, speaker, and facilitator. He works with individuals and organizations in three ways, uh, through his law practice, Wagenheim Law, training online through webinars, workshops, and courses, and speaking engagements. As a teacher and a guide, Elliot has a proven track record helping people avoid deadly contract traps and protecting hard-earned profits. So, Elliot, welcome. Thank you for having me. <laughs> so, I got to tell you, I was uh, preparing for this episode of Executive Report, and I started looking back, and I realized we've known each other for 16 years. Yeah, I was going to say it was well over a decade, <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yes. I, I, honestly, I find that hard to believe, because I'm not that old. <laughs> no, no, but I'm double that, so, you know. <laughs> so... Um, Nonetheless, during that time, um, I have come to to see you not only as a friend, uh, but someone that is just an all-around great uh, business associate. Um, you're extremely knowledgeable, especially in contract law and legal issues, but just business issues in general. And one of the things I really love about your approach is you don't just tell us what to do as a lawyer. There's always teaching moments. Um, you tend to say... <laughs> You know, yes, you can do these things and these will be the outcomes, but here's how you do it in the future to make sure you don't end up in right. this situation again. And in my experience, that's extremely rare, especially with lawyers. So I'm really curious. Did you plan it that way? <laughs> no. Well, first of all, I don't think many people uh, as a as a kid will dress up for Halloween as a lawyer. You know, that's that's <laughs> what you really want to be. Um, what I always loved is business. I've um, I've had my own business since I was in high school. Put myself through college, and yeah. so I'm I'm a business person first, who just happens to have a law degree. And what wow. I do is run a law firm. And when you run a law firm, it's just like well, you run a service business. Yep. I have a service business. It's just. Um, a different industry. And so I think of things, I try to think of things through a business lens before you add the veneer of indecipherable Latin. <laughs> Understood. So ironically, the first time I met you um, was a construction organization and you were giving a workshop on joint venture contracts uh, for, oh, okay. for the construction industry. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I knew nothing about it, I'll be honest. I was there to meet people and network. Um, but I remember something very specific that you said, or, or a word that you said, uh, and you called them traps in the contract. And, you know, that really, you know, grabbed my attention because I think a lot of business owners, they don't know how to look for them. Um, they don't even know what they are. So can you explain a little bit of what a contractual trap is? Right. So... You know, when I when I was in law school and they were teaching us how to draft contracts or actually engage in any kind of written communication, the first thing that they taught us was write so you can be understood. And I thought that really made a lot of sense until yes. I realized it was stupid <laughs> because I always understand what I write. You know, I, I know what I mean to say. And it took me a long time to realize that the key to any written communication, particularly in contracts, is not to write so you can be understood. It's to write so you can't possibly be misunderstood. Mm. And so one of the, the big traps in a contract is that the parties really don't read through it and align it with their expectations and their fears. Mm. So 
That's a good point. What's the best thing that can happen? What do I really want to happen here? And the, the low-hanging fruit is, well, I want to do this thing, this service. I want to get paid for it. But maybe it's a testimonial. Maybe it's, I want my foot in the door for the next piece of business, or I want a referral, or what have you. But the other part is, what, what would make me look back on signing this contract um, with such regret that I would do anything to get out of it? And again... Maybe that's why I didn't get paid, but maybe it's, well, we just didn't get along. Or you're asking me to produce something, let's say, in the graphic design industry, and I don't like this design. Or you're, um, I'm being portrayed in a way I don't like, or the, the teams just don't work together, whatever it is. And the contracts are very often written without either of those in mind, without success or without regret in mind. And so they don't take into account the eventualities. You see... Contracts are nothing but communication with results. Hmm. And so the big trap with the contract is they're badly communicated. They don't create the results that you want, and they don't avoid the results that you don't want. I see. Now, are there any, what I would define as like standard traps that are written in, in Latin or legalese? So, yes. So there are a number of of key terms that have to be absolutely clear, of course, who's doing what, who's getting paid what, when is payment due, from whom is payment due, and what happens if you don't get paid. Okay. But then you have um, certain things, for example, indemnification. Mm -hmm. Indemnification is a fancy word that basically means you will become my insurance company if, right? <laughs> yeah. Here are the things. If these things happen, you're going to take the bullet for me. You're going to absorb these costs. So what are those costs? Are you indemnifying the other side for things you can control? Or are you giving them protection from eventualities that you can't control? I'll give you one quick example. Um, this week, I recommended to a client that they walk away from a contract that was worth millions of dollars because the indemnification provision said that we, as a subcontractor, will indemnify you as the general contractor, from any cost overruns or any scheduling delays arising out of supply chain interruptions. Ooh. Well, they can't control that. Yeah. I, nobody I know can control that. <laughs> and these scheduled delays could be, and the liquidated damages could be exorbitant. Yeah. So they had to walk away. And people often look at contracts assuming the best will happen, and they fall into a trap of not reading what happens if the worst occurs. Mm, I see. That, that's interesting. And I'm sure there's someone out there that's willing to sign that contract. Oh, yeah. Because a lot mm. of people think, well, it's just boilerplate. It's standard. I'm sure it's fine. And <laughs> they they don't read it because it's a pain to read. They have these, you know, 19 comma sentences and um, <laughs> they're, they're, it's impenetrable language. So they'll just sign it and they'll trust that the best will happen. So a lot of our, our audiences are executives, um, entrepreneurs, and sometimes new business owners. Mm -hmm. And um, some of those those guys, they really don't have the resources to have in-house attorneys or right. someone to review those things. So do you think it's a, a good rule of thumb that, you know, if you don't trust the person you're signing the contract with, you, you really shouldn't sign it? I think that whether you have the resources to hire a $4,000 an hour lawyer, if there are such creatures, <laughs> um, or you don't want to hire a lawyer, I would go so far as to say you never enter into a contract with a person uh, you can't trust. No contract in the world is going to protect you completely from a person without integrity. Mm. And that's the first question that I will ask when somebody's dealing with a new party across the table. Do you trust them to do the right thing? If the answer is yes, there's a deal to be made. If the answer is no, 
I'd run, not walk. So shouldn't, yeah, shouldn't go down that path. Yeah. Interesting. So, you know, I think a lot of a lot of people get absorbed in the contract clauses, scopes of work, mm-hmm. um, you know, the values, all those types of things, and they don't recognize that contracts really don't guarantee anything, right? Um, no, they don't. They they're the party's best expression of what they hope will happen, and kind of the floor on what they. Yeah. You know, want to protect themselves against, but like I said, it's communication with results. If you if you have to sue somebody, for example, yeah, that's the enforcement of it. right? That's the enforcement of it. But I was told a long time ago by a judge that you know a judgment is nothing but a hunting license. There's no <laughs> game in the woods. There's no game in the woods. So you could get a billion dollar judgment against somebody if you know the company was formed yesterday and they have no assets. Then it doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Um, Interesting. And a lot of times the contracts are enforceable, but nobody wants to spend a dime chasing a nickel. So if you have to spend $20,000 on a lawyer just for a shot at collecting the 7,500 you're owed, Mm. well, that's a problem. Got it. Now, in some of those situations, um, do you advise your clients to try and figure it out on their own before they turn to you? Well, so in Maryland, as in most states around the country, um, you can file a small claim without an attorney. Okay. If you're if it's an individual, you can file any claim without an attorney. But a, a company can file up to five thousand dollars without an attorney. So my very first book, way back in 1996, I know that's before you were born, but um, <laughs> I'm was not called, that young. <laughs> <laughs> was called the art of getting paid. And my idea was that clients shouldn't pay me to handle these small claims. It's a form-driven process. They should do it themselves. And um, and I didn't want to do it anyway because my mortgage <laughs> company hated me going into court for like $60 a case. So I wrote this book for that precise purpose, for self-help. And, and there's a lot you can do without having to hire a lawyer. Got it. But I would imagine the best solution is try to come to some kind of agreement without the courts. Absolutely. Uh, the courts and lawyering up should be a last resort. If you have people who approach the table in good faith, even though knowing reasonable people can disagree, mm-hmm. then you have the potential to, to control your own destiny as far as the resolution of a dispute is concerned. I'd, I wouldn't jump to, to hire an attorney, even if they're the best attorney in the world or you're very close with them. It's still uh, making everybody defensive mm-hmm. and putting a discussion on a more formal basis when maybe it can be resolved by an honest conversation. No, oh, fair enough. So I'd like to go back to um, the training because you just mentioned that you, you wrote a book, The Art of Getting Paid, and that's really around education. Yeah. And um, in some cases, it doesn't make sense necessarily to, to lawyer up, so to speak. So I think you have some pretty great options of how you can help clients um, in a really cost-effective way where they can educate themselves and learn to do some of these things um, without uh, the cost of a lawyer. Yeah, so we we started uh, the training facet of the law firm which right now is called Wagenheim U. We're changing that name because it's too close to the law firm, but <laughs> changing it to first rule uh, training. But so so Wagenheim U has two sides. It has a construction side and it has a general business side. And yeah. on the general business side, we have templates mm-hmm. that I drafted for a lot of different kinds of service businesses that are simple service businesses, but anything from event planners and commercial photographers, et cetera, um, coaches and, and things, so that they have a document, and I explain it and, and train on how to use it. They have a document they can use without the cost of actually having to hire a lawyer. <laughs> and on the construction side, I, I hold live workshops and I have 
uh, online courses to teach people what the contracts mean, how to negotiate them without having to, to hire a lawyer, what's safe to sign and where the risks are. So I'm curious from the from the business perspective. I mean, where do you see the line? Uh, whereas you know, because some of those people might say, "Oh, I took the course. I don't need to call Elliot anymore." I'm hoping so. <laughs> if I did my job right, they don't need to hire me okay. if, if they took the course. So, yeah, I mean, I guess the 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 quote unquote fear might be, you know, does one cannibalize the other? Am I depriving myself of clients in the law firm by teaching people how to? Um, do things without me? And the answer is maybe so, although um, the law is very geographically bound. So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm a Maryland lawyer. I'm not yeah. a North Carolina lawyer. And I've got students for my contract classes in 111 countries. So it's um, a different footprint. But the other part of it is, if I do my job right, the people who use my services, whether on the training side or the law side, prosper. The companies do well. That's right. And if they really need me and I'm honest about it, which I always am on, yes, this is when you need a lawyer or no, you know what? You don't need to hire me for this. Then that's how you develop a reputation. I've been around for 30 years and Baltimore is a small place. (laughs) (laughs) So if I didn't tell people, um, then I wouldn't have been in the practice that I have. Yeah. So, I mean, this idea of the the traps and the contracts, um, knowing where to negotiate and where not to, it almost seems like uh, one party, you know, is, is being a little schemish <laughs> and they're trying to trap someone purposely. But I think sometimes there's just templated contracts that have clauses and maybe the person issuing the contract doesn't even realize it's there. Um, and this happens to me personally. You know, a lot of times when I'm doing a public speaking event, I'll get what is a templated contract, sure. and there'll be there'll be clauses in there specifically. Um, and I think you posted about this not long ago as well, where if I sign the contract, they would then take ownership of my presentation and anything that I did while I was at their conference. And term to find out, they didn't even know that that was in the contract. Right. A lot of the people don't. First of all, a lot of people just take contracts from the internet and they just send it out there and they don't understand it. But, but you know, I think both sides can approach it in good faith. Let's take that, that speaking organization, mm-hmm. right? So the speaking organization has this clause, work made for hire, and that does say that, yeah, whatever you do for this event, they own it. They own your content. But they're probably not thinking, hey, this is a great way to get Steve's content. (laughs) What they're probably thinking is, well, this is our event. We want to make sure we can show a video of it. We can entice users or, I'm sorry, registrants to next year's event. So we want to make sure Steve can't can't call us and say, you can't put this up anymore. So why don't we just do a work made for hire that we own this? Hmm. Every time I've seen that clause for my speaking engagements and I've called up, it hasn't been uh, a reaction of, oh, geez, you caught me, no, right? Exactly. I, you know, but they've said, oh, okay, well, I understand your concern. All right, well, how about if we just change this or, or we find a middle ground? That's the biggest mistake people make. They assume that, that everything is bad faith, when if they That's just right. had a conversation, they would realize that what's keeping you up at night is something I can certainly address without interfering with what's keeping me up at night. Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. So obviously there's a ton of stuff we can talk about when it comes to contracts and, and legal stuff. But I, I really want to talk a little bit about you uh, as a person. So I know your father, husband, um, you've been doing law now for, as you said, thirty more than 30 years. No. So I'm curious, what's on the horizon for Elliot? What, what do you see in the next 5, 10, maybe even 15 years? So I... Um... 
I always said that I, I would like to make a good part of my living writing, teaching, and speaking. Mm -hmm. That's what I love to do. Um, uh, and we were talking before we went on air tonight. It's it's Wednesday night. I teach a public speaking course at Towson. And I just like it. You okay. know, it's just just for fun. But but here's the thing. I was giving some thought because you and I had, had spoken a bit about um, this question. You know what what's next? And what what always comes back to me is the one of the last lines of Shawshank Redemption, which. To paraphrase, it's, <laughs> if you haven't seen it, Morgan Freeman is on the bus, and what he talks about is freedom. And he says that that freedom is feeling yourself at the start of a journey whose end is uncertain. Hmm. And I think of that as far as where I am so fortunate to be with my law firm and the people I work with, the clients that I have, that I'm in the middle of a journey whose end is uncertain. I have certain things that I love, which is teaching. Uh, working with people, working with new businesses, helping uh, entrepreneurs. But I don't know what it's going to be in the next five years. And to me, that's the coolest thing <laughs> because it is uncertain. Um, and I've worked very hard, and I know you have too in your business, to get to the point where you don't have to have a five-year plan. You just, I want to hang out with cool people who are really engaged and love what they do, are contributing something to the world, and are role models in whatever community in which they, they happen to, to inhabit. You know, you don't have to define me at the table. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think to myself, I should have that bracelet made. What would Steve do? That's, gonna, that's, that's my answer to the next five years. I'm going to guide my life to what would Steve do? You might sell one of one <laughs> if you made that. Um, it's funny, when you mentioned Shawshank Redemption, um, I, that's a movie I'm very familiar with. And I, I thought you were going to say the quote uh, that's uh, either get busy get living, busy living or, or get, get busy dying. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's that's a little less uplifting, it but, is. but it's equally motivational. I think that's I think that's very true, particularly for people who find themselves in jobs they don't like. And a lot of people think, well, I don't like this. I'm going to I either have to leave and I don't have that luxury mm. or I have to stay. And I think that's not true. I think you can be in a job that that doesn't fully satisfy you and still think to yourself, okay, right now it doesn't fully satisfy me. Right. How can I make what I'm doing work better? How can I get busy living in this particular environment, not walking out of the building in slow motion, watching it <laughs> blow up behind you, but just sculpting your career as opposed to destroying that one and starting a new one. And I, look, I didn't want to do litigation for 20 years. I'm still a lawyer, yeah. but I found things in my field that I love, and I managed to, to craft it so that I can steer away from a lot of things that I don't. Uh, that's fantastic. So again, thinking of our audience, um, for anyone that's in that executive role or even entrepreneurial role, if you had to give them one piece of advice when they're looking at their next contract, what would it be? I think... It would be to make sure you look at the world through the other person's eyes. I call it strategic empathy hmm. because it it means that before you start getting down to the whereas clauses and indemnification and the 19 comma sentences, if you, if you gain an understanding of what success means to them, what regrets they can have, and um, what they really want to accomplish and what keeps them up at night. Hmm. If you if you really spend time, if I were in that other chair, what would keep me up at night? What would worry me about this? And then you craft your contract to meet them where they are. You can create something that is an exercise in in productive communication and actually, believe it or not, turn your contract into a business development tool. 
Wow. So, uh, so make sure you guys remember that strategic empathy. And, you know, I think that can be used in a lot of different ways, not just contract negotiations, but, you know, leadership positions, employment, um, you know, uh, any kind of management. So I, I think that's a, a great golden nugget. So everyone, make sure you hit that like button, make sure you hit subscribe and share this video. And Elliot, thank you so much for coming. Oh, thank you for having me. I loved it. <laughs>